0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. This time, the return of David Cameron. Rishi Sunak, the unelected Prime Minister, has given the plum job of Foreign Secretary to the equally unelected former PM who has been fast-tracked into the House of Lords. Cameron resigned, of course, in 2016 after the Brexit vote. Since leaving Parliament, his career has been distinguished, if that's the right word, by the Greensill scandal. Greensill Capital was founded by Australian banker Lex Greensill, which lent money to small companies awaiting payment from customers using their invoices as security. But £2 billion in loans has never been recovered. That contributed to the collapse of investment bank Credit Suisse, whose customers had advanced the cash Authorities in Germany and Switzerland are investigating possible fraud. Lex Greensill, who was once given an office in Downing Street by Cameron, has been named as a suspect. Greensill also lent more than £3.5 billion to the GFG Group, controlled by steel magnate Sanjeev Gupta. That business relationship is the subject of an ongoing investigation by the Serious Fraud Office. The group has consistently denied allegations of wrongdoing. What's all that got to do with Cameron? Well, before Greensill Capital collapsed in March 2021, Cameron lobbied civil servants and called business minister Nadim Zahawi, amongst others, pressuring them to lend the company £10 billion under emergency COVID loan schemes. In the event, loans worth £400 million were signed off and the money transferred to companies all linked to Sanjeev Gupta. The government has said it will not honour the guarantees made on those loans. Lex Greensill, the founder of Greensill Capital, said the company had always drawn upon robust advice from leading law firms to ensure they complied with relevant rules. A spokesman for David Cameron who made around £7 million from his lobbying work for Greensill said he acted in good faith at all times and there was no wrongdoing in any of the actions that he took. The Treasury Select Committee in 2021 said he showed a significant lack of judgment over the affair. So that's something of the atmosphere of sleaze, I suppose, or scandal that surrounds his appointment as Foreign Secretary. I want to hear now from Jesse Joe Jacobs, who is the director of the Democracy Network, a group representing more than 800 organisations seeking to renew UK politics. And David Waring is a lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex and an expert on UK foreign relations in the Middle East. Welcome both. And Jesse Joe, you're looking to renew UK politics and it's a fairly obvious observation. But here we have an unelected prime minister appointing an unelected foreign secretary
1: doesn't sound very democratic does it adrian and that's the you know the very heart of of this that up until yesterday he was outside parliament he was embroiled in some level of controversy and now he's going to be back in the heart of government being the uk's voice and face of our foreign policy in what is one of the most important roles of state like this is to me it really exposes some of the issues that we currently have with uk politics with the house of lords we've seen time and time again, some quite controversial appointments. It's fraught with problems, and this just shows the fragility and the actually sometimes less democratic processes within our democracy.
0: It is within the Constitution, though, isn't it? And there are occasionally cabinet ministers who are unelected, who are given a seat in the House of Lords. It's not the first time this has happened.
1: It's not the first time, it's not without precedent, but it is still astounding that it is possible. And I think what you sometimes see is members of the Lords given junior roles within the Cabinet. But what we see is that overnight, an ex who retired from Parliament seven years ago, who is basically going to be re-entering Parliament, put right back into the heart of it. And how is that possible? The public will rightly be thinking, well, come on here, if, if we have a democracy, how is it that we can appoint people into the very heart of our decision-making. That's because we have an unelected, appointed House of Lords and it's got to change. That's got to be the starting point for how we renew UK democracy. It's already a lot of unfairness and unequal people from local communities who can't get their say, who can't get their voice heard in, in Parliament, who aren't able to influence the decisions around them very easily and yet PM can appoint seemingly anyone they want into the house of lords
0: there may be an argument though i'm sure david cameron supporters would make this that he is extremely well connected he is a former head of state so he will know other heads of state that he's got extensive contacts in the world of business now and that he's exactly the man that we need to go and sell brand britain abroad
1: I think it comes back to whose decision is it? Like, if we have a democracy, then is it the people who have a say, who should go and represent us to the world leaders? Is it the people who should vote on who is leading our policy in all of these areas? You know, not just foreign policy, like democracy affects everything. It's our roads, it's our hospitals, it's our schools. So why is it that on these occasions the public have no say, no say whatsoever in who is shaping those policies and who's representing the UK? A democracy is about people having a say and having a vote, and this doesn't happen in this slightly murky world of the House of Lords.
0: David, what's David Cameron's record as a Prime Minister when it comes to international relations? Uh, It's not great. What he's most famous for, I guess, is the Brexit vote. I mean, Brexit was not something he wanted. Although we've just been hearing arguments about the lack of democracy, whatever else about Brexit, it did appear to express a democratic will in the country.
2: Well, that's as maybe, but if we, I mean, if we're talking about Cameron specifically. This was not the outcome he wanted, but it's the outcome that he got. So that speaks to his competence. I mean, he treated the whole issue as a, as a party political issue, as an issue of party management, trying to manage the Eurosceptics in his own party and also trying to manage the electoral threat from UKIP. It was a good deal more than an internal party political issue. It was a matter of British foreign relations, Britain's economic prosperity. He mishandled it badly from his own point of view, from his point of view as a, as a Remainer. And um, whether you or not you remain Remainer, I think it's, you can recognise it's fair to say that he lost that one, and it's quite a significant defeat. From my point of view, with my expertise in British foreign relations in the Middle East, I mean, that's a small thing, and that's not to say it's subjectively it's a small thing, it's just that it's a relatively small thing compared to far, far worse things that he was involved with in British foreign relations in that part of the world. I mean, you could take the intervention in Libya, in 2011, as one example, this was something that was clearly not thought through, not planned very well, and while it got rid of a dictator, it replaced a dictator with a state of anarchy, which, which still exists to this day, which is a pretty significant. another pretty significant failure, certainly significant for the people of Libya, who didn't get what David Cameron promised them when he intervened in their civil war. And more broadly across the Middle East, Cameron's Prime Minister will turn, coincided with a really important I mean, a historic set of circumstances, actually. In 2011, people may remember this huge wave of pro-democracy uprisings right across the Middle East and North Africa, the peoples of the Middle East coming out onto the streets in enormous numbers, challenging dictatorial rule, demanding democracy, demanding their rights. At the very moment that that was happening, Cameron happened to be on a tour of the Middle East trying to sell these dictator's British arms. Very embarrassing for him. He had a quick detour to Cairo where he went to the big square where the protesters were and said how inspired he was by it. But generally, over the subsequent few months and years actually, he basically doubled down on Britain's policy in the Middle East of arming some of the nastiest dictators and supporting some of them, you know, whether it's the regime in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. In Egypt. So he was very much a status quo prime minister at the time when the people of the region were calling for democracy, not the status quo. In in Yemen, that's probably the worst aspect of his entire term. You had a situation where the uprising, the pro-democracy uprising in 2011, triggered a kind of political crisis that degenerated into a civil war so he had a civil war in Yemen from 2014-15 onwards. These are the last sort of days, the final year of Cameron's premiership. Now, Saudi Arabia intervened in that civil war. It intervened with massive British support. The British supplied a huge proportion of the arms that the Saudis used in that intervention. And in that intervention, it was documented by the world's leading human rights groups by the UN from day one. That the Saudis were hitting civilian targets indiscriminately, that they were blockading large portions of Yemen, the portions where their opponents were based, caused a huge humanitarian catastrophe. Similar tactics to those used by Israel in Gaza, actually, you know, blockade and indiscriminate bombing. Well, Cameron's government, as I say, supported that, provided the arms. And that went on for a year or so. So, I mean, if you add all this together, it's a pretty, pretty terrible record. There's failure on his own terms in, in terms of Brexit. Then there's the support of human rights abusing dictatorships across the Middle East. There's another failure in terms of the intervention in Libya. And then there's a truly horrible record in Yemen in the last year of his premiership supporting a military campaign that was just blatantly attacking civilian targets. So anyone in Gaza there's not much room for optimism here. This is not something that's going to change the course of British foreign
0: policy as we look at this horrible humanitarian crisis in Gaza at the moment. People listening to this might argue about the cause of the conflict in Gaza differing from the cause of the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. But ultimately, if you're looking at the loss of innocent civilian life, the outcome is the same.
2: Yeah. And there's a basic point about international law, which I think is really worth stressing in, in this moment. And it applies you know, with regard to Cameron in, in Yemen as well, which is that, in a way, it doesn't matter who started the war from the point of view of how the combatants should conduct themselves within the war. And the fact that you were attacked doesn't mean that you have a right to commit war crimes. The Saudis, by the way, argued that they were fighting in Yemen in self-defence. Just as the Israelis do in Gaza. But whether or not you accept that argument, you have to conform with basic standards of international law, like not indiscriminately bombing civilian targets, like not waging collective punishment on a population, which is just a straightforward war crime. Well, that's what the Saudis did in Yemen with the support of the Cameron government effectively and did, you know, material support in the sense that they provided the arms. And so in terms of this horrific emergency that's happening now in Gaza. The British government now has a new foreign secretary who has experience of providing material support to a regime that committed similar war crimes to those that we're seeing Israel commit at the moment.
0: You will appreciate that when we say that people are responsible for war crimes, that is an opinion, not a fact. I mean, many people may well agree with you, but that is something that has to be determined by an international court ultimately, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and let's just get this across. While there hasn't been a conviction in an international court, I think we can interpret the situation as we see it based on the reports of credible organisations on the ground, credible organisations who've investigated this sort of thing in the past. When you're looking at war crimes, whether they're potentially committed by Saudi Arabia or whether they're committed by Israel, What I always do as a scholar is go to those leading bodies like Amnesty International, like Human Rights Watch, like the various UN agencies, and like the humanitarian groups as well, Oxfam, Save the Children. And I look at what they're saying, because they're the ones with the expertise, and they're the ones with the information, and they're the ones with the credibility. And in both cases, whether it's what the Saudis were doing with the Cameron government's support, effectively, in Yemen and what the Israelis are doing at the moment with the British government's effective support, all those groups and all those bodies had a, basically a consensus view that likely war crimes were being committed, that there was compelling evidence that war crimes were being committed. Not just a suspicion, but a statement that you know effectively with the collective punishment is a war crime and we don't need to wait for the ICC to determine that. We can see it happening. So it's important that people understand that while these are interpretations of evidence pending of, you know, some final judgment at some court, at the same time, they're not just opinions that people are pulling out of their backside. These are serious interpretations made by serious people, people with credibility and people with the evidence in front of them. So when we talk about Cameron's records in these terms, you know, it's, it's based on something, I'm afraid. It's not something we're going to be comfortable with, that people in our government can be responsible for such things. It's unnerving that people in our government can be responsible for such things or that such accusations can be levelled at them. Uh, nevertheless, they can be. And, and, and it's based on something, as I say, it's based on, um, on on evidence and on credible testimony from the most credible people on these issues.
0: But if you're the British Foreign Secretary taking an active role in world affairs, you'll look at the atrocious attack by Hamas and its supporters on Israeli citizens on October the 7th, the taking of hostages, many of whom have still not been released. And wouldn't you conclude that that was a war crime and that it was your duty to help combat those kind of war crimes and to fight terrorism?
2: Yeah, certainly. And and you know, the attacks that Hamas carried out on the 7th of October and after Hamas, Islamic Jihad and these other militant groups, just straightforward war crimes. And atrocities and that's widely understood the question then is what what do you do about it we had a similar situation i guess in the west on 11th of september 2001 where there was a heinous attack which was a straightforward atrocity and the question then was what do we do about it and the actions that were taken in the war on terror in the name of self-defense were not justifiable didn't make us safer and also constituted crimes in and of themselves So no doubt people in the government will say, yes, Israel is defending itself and it's fighting terrorism. But as was sort of outlined earlier, that doesn't justify what Israel concretely has been doing in Gaza. And the reason I raised this is is not just because it's the biggest foreign policy issue of the moment, you know, of the last few weeks. So the appointment of the Foreign Secretary speaks to that, you know, what is Britain's policy in this area? What does this appointment mean for Britain's policy in this current massive crisis. That's why it's worth bringing up. And it's important just to emphasise, at a point when people across the world are looking for a change of policy from the British government, you know, all the groups I mentioned before, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Oxfam, Save the Children, United Nations, they're all calling for a ceasefire. This is the consensus view amongst global civil society, amongst human rights groups and humanitarian groups, in the UN, in the wider world, for good reason. And the question then becomes, is Britain going to continue resisting that call? And when a new foreign secretary is is appointed, we might ask, well, could this signal a change in policy? And so I'll raise all this to say, if that's what people are asking themselves, the answer to that question is probably not, based on Cameron's record in the past, which is consistent with the
0: British government's Lamentable position, as I see it, on this issue. And Jesse, Joe, in terms of getting a wide range of voices heard in Parliament, the appointment of David Cameron, unelected, by his old mate Rishi Sunak, it doesn't speak well to that agenda.
1: What's interesting is what's been happening over the last few years, and David mentioned a lot of the charities who be speaking out around these international issues. The flip side of appointing your friends into the House of Lords is that they've also been weakening democracy in that people's voices are less heard because there's been changes to regulation about what charities can and can't say. There are a lot of charities who fear speaking out about certain issues, particularly if it's felt that they're attacking the government. So we've got that weakening of a voice there. We've got rolling back on the rights to protest. So people who who want to go out and make their voices heard on different issues, again, are feeling under attack and in some ways are under attack. And then the other fundamental of our democracy is that we can go to the polling booths and we can vote for someone different. But again, that's been weakened in that the the introduced voter ID and some changes around the elections law, which means that it's harder for people to vote. I think in the last local elections, there was some 30,000 people who were unable to vote because of a voter ID. So you've got this situation where the government can self-appoint people into the House of Lords, give them key positions. These people might be related, they might be donors to that party, they may be involved in scandal. Boris Johnson appointed people who'd been involved in the Covid scandal, breaking those rules at the time, when ordinary people are having less of ability to make their voices heard. And, And on these big international issues, these issues that people feel so passionately about, there are times when The fundamentals of UK democracy is the belief in the freedom of speech, whether people like it or not, whether everyone agrees or not. That's the fundamental part of a democracy that we can make our voices heard. And yet people can't. And it's it's getting worse. So we've got a job to do when we want to see big changes, big changes in international policy, big changes in in transport, in local issues and regional issues then the question that I ask people is, well, we have to change the system. We have to change how decisions are made and who represents us. We have to change how we can influence those things, because if we can't, if we're continually let out in the cold, if we're continually disempowered from speaking about things or influencing policies, then how are we ever going to get the decisions, whether it's peace and justice on our own streets, whether it's security and prosperity, the communities here or abroad, if the, the people who are making the decisions aren't listening, aren't giving us an ability to, to do that, then then we really have to question the current democracy that we have. It's not actually fit for the future. And it's definitely not fit to, to face the continuous serious issues that we are going to see in all sorts of areas. So there's a there's a job to be done. There may be a well be a change of government next year. And I really think that it's important that whether that's a Labour-led government, that they address some of these systemic issues. So we can't see this failure in in democracy anymore. The real change will come when decision-making and politics itself changes.
0: Well, as a state school kid from a comprehensive in Birmingham, I note that an investment banker has appointed An old Etonian. These things can't help but uh, resonate with me somewhere deep down. Really appreciate it. I'm Jesse Joe, Jesse Joe Jacobs from Democracy Network. Thank you as well to David Waring from the University of Sussex. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this and you want to support our work, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. You get full details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. The Byline Times is now available at selected newsstands as well. It's going into Sainsbury's very soon. But if you want to make sure of a copy, you need to take out a subscription. That's at bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production for The Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.